it's me. Good morning. How are y'all? As I said, my name is Abby. Um, the last time that I, I guess, met most of you, I was here interviewing for a job, more or less. And uh, apparently, you liked me because I now have the job. So I thank you, I suppose. Um, and nevertheless, I'm here this morning to um, preach God's Word to you. And uh, this is something that I do, obviously, every Sunday morning at, at Haynes Creek. And um, it was, I believe, Cody's idea to switch places. Um, and I can't figure out if he wanted me to get a chance to know you or if he's just trying to make sure that I don't screw things up over at Haynes Creek. But either way, you're stuck with me this morning. Um, nevertheless, if you want to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. We've been, you all have been going through the book of Romans. And you all have actually been going through what many perceive to be the deepest, often most difficult part of Romans. And we're now coming up out of the water, and we're in chapter 12. And Roman, uh, Paul has some very practical words for us. I don't know, do you all stand for the reading of God's Word? Let's do that. I, I, th I, I, thought, I remember you all doing that. In reverence of the Lord, we're standing, and now I'll read the words of the Holy Spirit. Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each, is, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For is, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another." Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does, act of, does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes and our minds and our hearts this morning to receive that which you have apportioned for your church. Help us to come to this text, this inspired text, and render our hearts in awe and reverence and in worship of you and your saving revelation to us. Lord, give us a sense of worship and obedience and humility 
as we read and work our way through the oracles of God. And all these things we ask in your son's name, amen. You may be seated. That was my wife singing. Her name is Kelly. She got the music gene. I didn't get the music gene. I took eight years of piano lessons. Eight years. Can't play a lick of piano. I mean, I, I know theory, I guess, you know? I know that those things, that they're, those are treble clefts. I know that, that's about it. I know more about that, but my point is, she got the gene, she got the gift. I didn't get the gift. Which I think is very appropriate for our text because the Lord especially equipped her to do what she just did, which is why I'm not doing it because I wasn't gifted to do it. Eight years of piano lessons. So when I meet people who can like play by ear instruments, have you ever met that person? You know, they just like, just pick it up and just start playing. You're going, how did you, oh, I just started. I'm like, don't tell me that. That makes me angry. (laughs) God gives us all different gifts. Thank God. But you don't have to have a special gift to pick up the Bible and read it. If that requires a gift, God gave us all that gift. And we're going to be talking about this mo- that this morning. The Holy Spirit authored the Scriptures in such a way that everyone is able to pick it up and read it. But just like anything else in the world, if you don't want to really understand it, in fact, you know, let's, let's word it another way. If you really want to get to the bottom and really study it and really understand it, it really takes, just like anything else, you've got, t- you got to give it time. You've got to give it effort. There's this misconception today that God doesn't really expect us to read all of it because he knows we're not going to understand it all, and that's a lie. What I always tell people is this. God spent over a thousand years, more like 13, 1400 years, composing this. The least we can do is open it up and read it and to figure out what he's saying to us. Now, that doesn't mean there's not hard parts to the Bible. Y'all just went through Romans 9 through 11. We all know there's hard parts to the Bible. And it doesn't mean that we won't fully understand some parts more fully in heaven, in glory. I know if you're like me, you're going to walk through those gates and you go, okay, I've got like a lot of questions. But those who claim we can't understand the Bible are really just masking their laziness and their idolatry with excuses. If a kid wants to be a basketball player, we tell him to practice. If a kid wants to be a doctor, we tell her to study. Why is it that when people tell us that the Bible's too hard to read, we tell them it's okay to give up? The reason I'm going through all this, the reason this is even relevant is because for those who struggle to read the Bible, the book of Romans is almost always one of the first books that gets axed because it's hard. I mean, new believers, you're hardly ever taking, hey, you just get, you, did you just get baptized? Okay, let's go through Romans. No, you don't hear that. 
People who struggle to read the Bible already sometimes don't even make it to Romans. There are many professing believers today who've never read the entire Bible, which is sad. Here's what Martin Luther, the author of the Protestant Reformation, had to say about Romans. Quote, This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much. For the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. The first Protestant in the history of the world said that. It was John Wesley's favorite book. It was Augustine's favorite book. Romans has shaped human history. I want us to keep that in mind the next time we're struggling with a passage in Romans. God didn't say it was going to be easy. He didn't say He was going to hand-feed you these precious truths. These are the greatest, most profound, most soul-nurturing truths the world can offer, and it's going to take a little effort. Soul-nourishing truths. But Luther said the more we wrestle with it, the more precious it becomes. This morning, I'm going to try to draw out one central truth, and that is it. that's this statement. Worship is our response to God's saving revelation. Worship is our response to God's saving revelation. We need to be reminded of this truth because Romans chapter 9 through 11, in my opinion, are three of the most difficult chapters in the entire Bible. I'm sure at one point Cody reminded you, this is hard. Even Peter talks about that. Says, you know, that guy Paul's pumping out gold. It's just a little difficult to understand sometimes. Peter said that. And there are many people who would say, well, God doesn't desire us to know all that deep theology stuff. You want to bet? Yes, he does. This isn't some cryptic, undecipherable, ancient text. It is ancient. But it's a double-edged sword, and it's living, and it's breathing. These are God-breathed, Spirit-inspired scriptures that are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, as Paul says. God didn't waste His breath, church. And the deeper we go into God's Word, the deeper it evokes our worship. Paul gets to the very end in chapter 11. You covered it last week. Paul gets to the very end of what is perhaps the three densest, deepest, most difficult theology there is. And at the very end, he doesn't go, whew, man, I'm glad we're done with that. Let's actually, here's what he says. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he may be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Deep theology brings Paul to worship. That's called doxology, what I just read. Which is actually why that's actually the title and the entire theme of the series. Somebody could look at Romans 9 through 11 and go, oh, that's just that's philosophy. 
Paul doesn't think so. That's Paul's response to God's saving revelation. Giving glory to a vast and magnificent God. Now, I think it's important to understand, Paul is not talking about how mysterious and how unsearchable the scriptures are. He's talking about how mysterious and unsearchable God is. And that's an important distinction to make. That's an important difference because because God is so vast and so deep, we savor his saving revelation. It's the very same thing with Isaiah 55 when the prophet says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways. I've heard people quote that text as if Isaiah was talking about his own scriptures. That's not what Isaiah is saying. He's saying God is above us. And because God is above us, because God is so vast, because he is so immense, because he is so magnificent, we trust what he says. The Paul shows us in chapter 11 is this. The deeper we grow in the knowledge of God, the more praise and the more adoration and the more worship we have for how great He is. We're people of the Word, is what we are. For almost 20 years, I grew up an hour away from the largest cave in the world. I'm from western Kentucky. I'm sorry, no one's perfect. I don't know if y'all have ever heard of Mammoth Cave. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Mammoth Cave. Okay, well, I grew up an hour from Mammoth Cave. It took me 20 years to go visit the thing. Which, by the way, y'all, some of y'all might be guilty. I'm telling you, y'all are from a really cool area around here. I hope you've been to some of these places. Because my wife and I, you better believe we've been asking Siri. Where, I mean, Siri's got like a list of things we need to go see. But Mammoth Cave is the largest cave in the world. Raise your hand if you've been to Mammoth Cave. Oh, it took me 20 years to go there because everyone's going, hey man, you got to see this cave. And I'm like, oh, I don't, it's a cave. Why do I need to go see a cave? Then I finally went to the cave and I found out it's not just a cave. There are streams, there are rivers, there are cliffs, there are dives, there are rooms there that are bigger than small stadiums in this cave. There are parts of Mammoth Cave they still have not found the end to. Think about that. The deeper you go into this cave, the more you walk out, and you've all been there, you're going, wow. This thing down the road that I'd heard about my whole life, I didn't care, I didn't give two cents about it. I mean, I'd heard people go there and camp there and whatnot. Then I actually went there and I left with a sense of awe and wonder and it's the exact same way with God in Christ. God is inviting us into his depths. And he promises us that you're never gonna find the end, but the deeper you go, the more you're gonna leave with a sense of awe and wonder. Romans 11 through 12 is Paul coming out of the cave. My goodness. You don't go into the depths and the, and, and the deepest truths of God and come out going, I don't really, I don't get it. You're not going to leave bored, y'all. No one comes out of Mammoth Cave feeling like they wasted their time, and no one comes and explores the depths of God's Word and feels like it's anything other than the most soul-satisfying experience they've ever had. Why is it that we struggle with people going, eh, I don't get it. Martin Luther says, work at it, and it will become precious to you. 
Nobody plums the depths of this book seeking after him first and, and goes, I don't like it. I think the reason people don't read the Bible today is they don't get excited about God. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So now we've emerged from the deep revelations of God. You all just came out, you're, you're kind of, you came out of Romans 9 through 11, and some of y'all are like, election, predestination, sovereignty, whoa! That's kind of what some of y'all are thinking. But when we go to Romans 11 to 12, we're transitioning from deep theology to everyday practical living. But Paul wants us to know that one springs from the other. The deeper we abide in the mercy and grace of God, the deeper we go into how sovereign His grace goes, the more we have fuel to live for Him. There's a false dichotomy that exists today, and it's like, hey, I don't want that theology stuff. I want practical living. Paul doesn't make the distinction. He says, you go deep into the theology, you'll find your practical living. And I think when we use the word theology today, I mean, let's be honest, a lot of us just think of that person that we don't like who just doesn't use the practical living because they're not doing it right. But if we do theology right... It just weaves itself in. A good sermon, I have, I, have sermon I, have pra- I have preachers that I love and listen to, and the best preachers, in my opinion, are the ones that give you deep theology and they give you practical teaching and you don't really know where one ends and the other begins. They just, they just weave it in. That's good theology is what it is. We, live, we leave with our heads filled, but our hearts are full. There's two things in verse 1 that tell me that God intends for theology to be our fuel. And there's two things in verse 1. The first is the word, therefore. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. That that Greek word, hoon, means that whatever Paul just said at the end of chapter 11 is the reason and ground for his teaching in chapter 12. The second is the phrase, by the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Another way to translate that is because of the mercies of God. Actually, in in this instance, I actually prefer the NIV's translation. It says, in view of the mercy of God. I think that one's the best. What Paul's saying is, because of God's mercy, you are to do this. Because of God's election, because of God's sovereign grace, because of his unconditional election for sinners and love for sinners, your life should be a response to his grace. Today, there's a tendency for many Christians, let me, let's just be honest. There's, there's, a, there's a tendency right now in evangelical churches especially to bicker and squabble over these topics. But Paul says, if these things make you argue instead of bringing you to worship the living God, you're doing it wrong. Predestining sinners doesn't make us squabble. It doesn't make us want to shake our fists at people. It makes us stand in awe of the riches of His grace. That's what it does. 
Let's finish the rest of verse one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, because of the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Because God is sovereign and because God is merciful, our lives are now lived from him, through him, and to him. And we're going to talk about what that means. Paul commands us to present our bodies. What does that mean? Well, he says, he's saying this. If, you're, if you've been born again, if you've been made into a new creation, your life is now not your own. It's given wholly in service to him. Your whole life, your whole person, your whole body. Everything we are is him. We've been doubly purchased. We've been created, now we've been recreated. Paul's saying we're all in. There are, of course, three adjectives Paul uses to describe sacrifice. Living, holy, and acceptable to God. Living, holy, and acceptable to God. If someone were to ask me, give me three things to describe a Christian, I may give them those three. A Christian is someone who is alive to God, made holy to God, and acceptable to God. Those three things. In other words, eternally speaking, we are utterly useless to God unless we've been resurrected and made new, unless we've been set apart and made holy by His Spirit, and unless we've been justified and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Those three truths should really fuel your week this week. Whatever you do this week, however you worship Jesus, whatever you do to serve Him, it should start with those three things. I'm alive to God, I'm set apart by Him, and I'm cleansed by the blood. Those three things. You know, there's, <laughs> there's a, no amount of good parenting, because I'm falling into this trap now because I'm a parent, and I'm, like, my, my worth is tied into my kids. <laughs> you all struggle with that. There's a part of us that can't help it. I mean, there are are babies. But God reminded me this week, there's no amount of good parenting that I could do to make me acceptable to God. There's no amount of money, I mean, I don't have money, but if I did have money, there's no amount I could give to make me holy. There's nothing I could do or no amount of things I could give to make me acceptable to God or waken my cold, dead heart. God makes me alive, holy, and acceptable to Him. Therefore, God is the initiator of my worship and the goal of my worship. I think we need to stop thinking of worship in terms of what we give up for God and think more in terms of what He gave up for us. Worship is my heart's response to grace. We are living sacrifices, but God dictates the terms of your sacrifice and presents us to Him. What I mean by that? Well, when Paul says that we're sacrifices living, holy, and acceptable to God, that's another way of saying that all things are from Him, through Him, and to Him. The Father elected me unto salvation, the Son shed His blood for me, and the Holy Spirit raised me in newness of life. I have nothing to claim on my own. Salvation is Trinitarian salvation. This book is just a story about God. That's what it is. It's a map for my life, and it's a way that I live for Him, and it's revealing Himself to me. But at the very end, it's just a story about God redeeming sinners. 
At the end of the day, we have nothing to give God but the very life and breath and strength and will he gave us. When I was eight years old, I wanted to give my parents a a Christmas present. You know, they probably thought that was real cute. I didn't have any money. You know, I didn't have a job then. So mom and dad created this way that I could give them a present. This may have, you may, kids give you presents, what do you do? You give them the money to buy it. You give them the wrapping paper. You give them the card. You give them the box and you just let them go. And somehow the parents make it seem like you just gave them gold. Everything was from my parents, through my parents, and to my parents, and somehow it was acceptable to my parents. It was from them, through them, and to them, same way with the gospel. Everything you're giving God, he already gave you. It's the same with God. We have nothing to give. We have no breath in our lungs. We have no praise to shower him with other than the strength and will he already gave us, which, of course, just makes us worship him even more. Just like me looking back at my parents, and I'm like, man, I just love my parents. They were just such, you know, I'm sure they were laughing when I just kind of, you know, it was a terrible sacrifice. It was a terrible gift. It was so horribly wrapped. I don't even remember what I got them, but I'm sure it was the worst present under the tree. They made me feel like I just gave them Mercedes. And same with God. Paul goes on in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I think it's important to remember that a people who are set apart, who are made alive to God, who are made holy and made acceptable to Him, will inevitably not conform in a world that is dead, profane, and defiled before Him. We are a people of God's own possession. We are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation, as Peter says. And Paul says that when we're transformed, we have our minds renewed. What does that mean? Well, first he says we've got to present our bodies. Now we have to renew our minds. Christianity isn't just about what you do. It's also about the way you think. God's working to renew the the way that you look at the world, the way your logic works. The way you think about God is either worship or idolatry. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I'll explain. Growing up, I was taught wrongly. I can't trace it back to whoever taught me this, but I know that I was taught this. I was taught that... God was angry in the Old Testament and that somehow he just got happy in the New Testament. I was taught that. Hey, you laugh. There's a lot of kids that think that. And inevitably, that caused me to sin against God because I was thinking wrongly of him. I was sinning against him. This is what I was doing. And this is why. One, I was reading the Old Testament completely wrong. And when you think, when you present the Bible like that, who wants to read the Old Testament? Just give me to the good part. Secondly, I grew up without a fear of God because he's happy now. He's not, he's not like that old judgy God in the Old Testament. 
Thirdly, I had this idea that the gospel was all about God's love, but there was no holiness, there was no justice, there was no wrath at the cross. So when I looked at the gospel, I didn't think, it never occurred to me that the same God who annihilated sinners in the Old Testament was punishing his own son on our account. I had an incomplete view of the cross because I had an incomplete view of God. I was thinking wrongly of him, and because I was thinking wrongly of him, I was sinning against him. Therefore, I sinned against God every time I thought of him because I thought of him wrongly. Some of y'all go, well, I mean, I'll be, I get that, but I don't think that's sin. You, yeah, it is. Everything that you're thinking about God is connecting to the heart that you have for him. That's why Paul keeps preaching a big God. You can't go wrong preaching a big God because he's big. Which just brings us to adoration and worship when we come to the cross because we're like, that God did that for me. How in the world? The output is worship. Paul says that renewing of our minds is not just, it's not just thinking differently. Renewing our minds is the way that we actually discern and test God's will in our lives. I hear so many parents today say, I just want my child to know God's will for, for their life. I hear that all the time. It's a, it's a very good, I, I, you know, I'm sure when I get that age where my kid's 16, I'll be wanting them to figure out the will too. But I hear that all the time. The parents go, I just want them to figure out the God's will for their life. Well, you know what Paul says? Paul says, you want to know how to discern and approve of God's will? Seek after Christ first and have your mind renewed. Parents, grandparents, please hear me when I say this. This world is telling your child that their meaning is found and their calling is found at the end of this journey. Christ is telling your child they will know his will by seeking after him first and he will be their journey. We find God's will only when we've had our minds renewed by seeking after Christ in the scriptures. The, the best thing you could do is to ensure that your child or your grandchild, the best thing you could do to ensure that they grow up in the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the best thing you could do that, that ensures that they have a good character and respect for their parents is to make sure that you're taking them to the living God in the scriptures. Because that's how it works. Worship is engineered in saving revelation. Parents, if your child doesn't fear God they're not going to fear you. So make sure they, fe they think rightly of God. Wives, if you want your husband to love you well, you better make sure he thinks rightly about God's love in the gospel because he ain't going to love you if he doesn't love his maker. The way we think about God affects the way we live for God. We worship God by becoming living sacrifices and we become living sacrifices by having our minds renewed and we have our minds renewed by coming back to the precious truths of the gospel as revealed in the Bible. That's how it works. You want to know what a person who conforms to the world, he talks about do not, do not be conformed to the world is what Paul says. And that kind of brought me to think, what does what someone who conforms to the world look like in Covington, Georgia? Ask yourself that. 
I mean, we could, we could sit here and go, hey, don't conform, you know, Jesus. But let's, let's talk practically. If you walked out just the square, you know, walking, living your life in Covington, Georgia, what's that look like? Someone who doesn't conform to Christ, but conform to the world. I thought about that all week. Because my goodness, there are just some, everyone's nice. I'm sure if I look under a rock or a tree, I'll find someone who's not nice. There are unbelievers in Covington. Think of someone, you know, if, if you had to think of someone who doesn't conform to Christ, but is, is strictly conformed to the world. Think of someone who conforms to our religious habits. Think of someone who conforms to our religious language. Think of someone who conforms to our religious community. Think of someone who outside looking in, they look like us but who in their minds, they don't give daily thought to the mercies of God. A renewed mind is one that meditates on the mercies of God in Christ. What's my point? One of the best ways to know what someone thinks about is to listen about what they talk about. Someone who doesn't have their mind renewed in Christ doesn't just bring up Jesus in the middle of a conversation. Women, Spouses, wives, does your husband bring up and talk about Jesus? I had a, we had a friend, a family friend, real pretty girl. She was dating this really big football guy, and everyone at the church thought it was like just a match made in heaven. She broke up with him after a month, and everybody wanted to know why, because his parents were good, were big at the church, and hers was too, and she said, never once did he ever bring up anything spiritual at all. We talk about what we think about, and a renewed mind thinks about Jesus. It's time for us to stop asking people to church like the best thing we have to offer them is good child care and good community. When you, when you offer to bring someone to church, when you ask someone to First Baptist Covington, what your offer is to people is you're inviting them to come and grow in the knowledge of God with people who are being transformed. We're a transformed people. We're a renewed people because we're people of the word. I'm going to read Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Once again, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Stop. So I don't need to despair whenever I can't play piano. You don't need to despair if you can't come up here and preach. Some of y'all are like, well, you got up there and you can't preach. I'm kidding. <laughs> you don't need to despair if you don't have the money to give like other people do. You don't have the despair if you don't have tools and a big old truck to help out with mulch and such. God gave you certain things. God gave you certain gifts. He gave you certain opportunities. And whatever you have, that is what you give. Because you're assigned that. The head doesn't look at the arm and go, man, I wish I could have muscles. The, because the muscle is looking at the head going, I wish I had a brain. I'm looking at my wife going, man, I wish I could sing. She's looking at me going, well, maybe that's a bad analogy. I don't remember. She's, 
But you know what I mean. Let's, let's continue, verse 5. Verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. If I had to pick out one phrase in those last five verses we just read, if I had to pick out one phrase that just pops, that I feel like brings it all together, it's in verse 5. One body in Christ. In Christ. There is a relationship that I have kindled since I've moved here that I think is a testament to that phrase. There is a friend that I have made since I've been here that I think demonstrates what Paul is talking about in these, these five verses. And his name is Tim Barnes. Tim's like, oh boy, here we go. I don't even know if Tim's in here. This is what I mean. Tim is so musically talented, and I'm not. Tim is like super old school, and I'm not. Tim likes really old-timey hymns. I mean, I kind of like them, but I mean, I'm not like into them like Tim is. Tim has these like old-school tastes, and he has these like, you know, he's kind of goofy, I'm kind of goofy. Maybe that's what brings us together. But the, culturally, the world is telling Tim and I that there's really no reason we should be friends because we don't have really anything in common. If that's the case, then why do I love spending time with Tim? Why do I love just kind of picking on him and going visiting him in his office? I don't like, I'm not into music. I'm not talented in music. I don't love old-timey things. I'm not old school. But yet somehow, I love spending time with Tim. Why is that? I think the reason is this. We have one mind. We both have a mind that's renewed. I don't need a common hobby with Tim. I don't, I don't need a similar personality with Tim. I don't even need similar tastes with Tim. I just need a common Savior with a renewed mind. We are of one mind because we are of one spirit. When we are transformed, when we're renewed, when we're made alive, holy, and acceptable to God, that is the foundation of our friendship, not sports or weather. And I wanted to end with this. Friends, when your heart has been changed and your mind has been renewed, two things happen. The more and more you start feeling like you don't belong in this world, and the more and more you start feeling at home with believers who have very little in common with you. And if that's not the case, you're conforming to something other than the living God. If you have come to church and spent your years here at this church and the only people you're conforming to are people with tastes, hobbies, personalities similar to you, you are conforming them to the world and not unto Christ. Do you have one friend at this church who doesn't have really anything common with you, but you love them to death? I've met one already. His name's Tim. 
I hope you have that friend. Because friendships in Christ remind us that we don't need to be all football fans to have things in common. We don't need to all, all the musicians don't need to just hang out with one another, just like all the priests and the pastors need to hang out with one another, and just like all the people in leadership need to hang out with one another, doesn't mean that you have to just interact with people in your social group. The reason God is able to sustain different people in one church is because we all have one source and one power. And that is the Lord. Our unity as a church isn't built on ancestries, hobbies, or personalities. It's built on Christ. And that's where our hope is. It's not from us, through us, and to us. It's Him, 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 Him. And so I wanted to end with this. Chapter 12 of Romans is proof that from the deepest theology comes the deepest praise. God has not called us to ignore His Word. He's called us to read it. God has not called us to His church to be a social club. He's called us to be transformed. And He promises us that we will be a renewed people when we are a people of the Word. So I have two questions to ask. Are you seeking after Him with all of your heart? Are you reading your Bible? Because if you're not reading your Bible, you're not seeking after Him with your whole heart. Do you think when you hear the word theology, do you have a bad kind of just somebody in mind that you thought just kind of ruined that word for you? Then just get a new word. I don't use theology in certain crowds. I just say knowledge of God. Hey, you want to do theology? I don't know. Hey, what about just growing in the knowledge of the Savior? Hey, I'm down for it. Go with that one. The reason we're here as a church is just to continue growing in the knowledge of our Savior. That's the very point of church. That's meaning why we're here. And the God that we serve promises us that if we do that, our hearts will worship Him. And that's what unites us. We hang to the promises of God by going to them every single day. Because folks, living into 2017, you're going to need them every day. We will be a renewed people when we are people of the Word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the oracles of God. We thank you for your gracious revelation. We know that if it was up to you, Lord, you didn't actually have to say anything to us. You could have been completely mute. There was no need for you to reveal yourself to us, but you have, and our hearts are pouring out to you because you are God who is not silent. Lord, the same breath and the same voice that spoke the universe into creation is the same breath that authored these scriptures. Lord, let us not take you for granted, but let us come to you in worship. And all these things we ask in your son's name. Amen.